Hello again. Welcome to X. I'm Murray Mandrick, political columnist for the Regina Leader Post. Uh, we are, I guess, 11 days away from the election right now. Uh, so we're getting a little closer to the wire after the debate. And speaking of that debate, uh, we're going to talk a fair bit about that today and other things related to First Nation issues. Uh, with me today, as usual, is Arthur White Crummy, who is uh, Leader Post legislative reporter covering this campaign. And it is an absolute privilege to uh, welcome a old, younger, much younger than me friend, Merelda Fiddler. Let me get all the titles straight. Vanier Scholar, Reform Journalist, uh, Professor at First Nations University or, or Instructor at First Nations University. How, how much time do we have on a 20-minute podcast to get all your titles in now, my friend? Not enough. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess I do a lot of different things now, but I'm just really excited to be working with you again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Merelda and I were on the debate last night for uh, those of you who haven't seen it, and it was just an absolute privilege. She's a brilliant, brilliant lady, as you'll soon find out. But before we go there, let's catch up with the week. God, it has been, what, eight days since the last uh, time we did one of these podcasts? I think there's only really been four campaigning days because they pretty much took the long weekend off and pretty much two days for date uh, debate preparation. But so much has happened. We've had the uh, the platforms come out. We've had uh, more scuttle about the scandal and certainly debate, debate last night. But let's start with our poll that came out this morning. Uh, Arthur, can you give us a synopsis in rough terms what it says? Well, it's certainly uh, bad news for the NDP and fairly encouraging for the SAS party. Essentially, we're about where we were when we started this campaign. We already had uh, an ECOS poll uh, before the campaign that put the SAS party 25 points above, a different one that put them 30 points above. Now we're at 27. So we're essentially splitting the difference. It doesn't seem like we've moved that much. There's a lot more insight in this poll than just the horse race number, though, because it tells us the way that the party leaders are being perceived and what issues might be driving uh, the vote. And what's yeah, really interesting... That, because I found that interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. That. Go ahead. Well, the thing about that is that the SAS party seems to be successful in winning over voters on its preferred terrain of the economy. From the beginning, Scott Moe has said, this election is a choice about who you trust to lead the province through the economic recovery. It seems like a lot of voters agree with that. Economic issues were uh, uh, three of the top five issues, uh, things like resources, things like economic growth, taxes, and for people that care about those issues, the SAS party is truly dominating. For resources, they were up 83 points higher wow. than the NDP, basically wiping them out. So the NDP has some bright spots. They're doing well on healthcare, they're doing well on education, but they're still splitting support with the SAS party, even on their stronger issues. The Whereas the me, SAS party is yeah. running away with the economic issues. And that's fascinating because the, the bright spot that I saw in the poll for the NDP is that people, and I don't mean to sound cruel about this, but people really want them to be the opposition, or rather they really want an opposition. And under the circumstances that they're now in, with 13 seats, that actually could be a positive, where people could be electing them as an anti-government vote, particularly in Regina and Saskatoon. Doesn't look like much is going to move in rural Saskatchewan, obviously. But yeah, tell us about just briefly about the whole notion of the positivity of uh, uh, of that for the NDP as it relates to an electorate being wise enough, smart enough to understand oh, maybe big government's not exactly the best thing for us right now. Yeah, there does seem to be an appetite for change and a hunger for different options. Uh, certainly there was a, almost half of voters feeling like the SAS party majorities have been too large recently. Uh, there were even SAS party voters who felt that the province needs a stronger opposition. Unfortunately, that's just not translating into support for the NDP. There's a hunger for change, but it doesn't seem like people are choosing the NDP as the vehicle to deliver it. And unfortunately, none of the third parties have really gotten the exposure or made the credible case to convince people that they're the ones to do it either. Well, I, I guess we can think or maybe 
understand at least that this is a poll taken halfway through a campaign. And though you make the, the valid point, nothing has moved. Nothing has really moved in uh, the four-year term except for whatever happened in 2017 when we had that budget. But things do move sometimes in the campaign, and sometimes the thing that makes them move is the debate. So I, I just want to switch to to that for a moment and, and bring Morelda in because you were sitting there with uh, uh, me looking much better, asking much smarter things, I might add. But do, do you get a sense uh, just in their overall body language that you saw last night uh, of the leaders that maybe you didn't have before, Morelda? And I ask you that because, as I say, you're a reform journalist, but a, a journalist. Like, Was there something that you're sort of sensing that you saw last night that kind of surprised you, particularly in relation to your questions, which were absolutely excellent? Uh, well, thank you, Murray. I think, you know, I've learned from the best, so you can take some credit there. Adam um, is good. <laughs> while, uh, while I was sitting there, I was actually surprised at how much um, I felt like I was getting to know them there. Unlike you guys, I'm not on the campaign trail. I don't see them in the legislature. I'm kind of, I'm removed. So I see them on TV a lot. What I saw there, and particularly with Miley, was a stronger Miley. Like he was standing up tall. You know, he got his hands out. He turned to Mo. He acknowledged him. He challenged him a bit more, which I I feel like I haven't seen when he's sort of been out and about. So that I really noticed right away. Um, for Mo, I saw in a lot of in a lot of cases sometimes like a kinder, gentler Mo. Like sometimes his voice is so loud that you kind of it feels almost aggressive, but last night I didn't feel that. And he certainly didn't use that on Miley. Like they were really respectful, which is something that I really appreciated watching. And I actually walked away from that debate feeling like I learned a couple things. Do you think it was deliberate? Do you think they went really far out of their way to have this uh, really uh, conciliatory, uh, professional tone that you we saw last night because compared not only just what we've seen in recent uh, federal U.S. presidential debates but what we've seen in Saskatchewan last time and Arthur wrote about this last week about his only introduction uh, to Cam Broton seemed to be Cam Broton in the debate which really wasn't Cam Broton because uh, he pretty mild my but first to you uh, I guess Morel did was it deliberate do you think that they were they both trying to reach somehow a same goal of presenting uh, uh, an image that's a little bit more calm and conciliatory than, than maybe some of us were expecting? Oh, I think they did for sure. And I think that's probably for two reasons. One, you don't want to look like the Americans, which is something that, you know, people make memes out of. So the last thing they want during the last like 11 days of the election is to have a series of memes about being an attack dog. <laughs> but the other part of that, too, I think is people can't make decisions if they don't actually know where the parties stand on certain policies. So I think they were really making a concerted effort last night to show their differences in just a much more respectful way. Reporters doing stories tend to get uh, immediate feedback sometimes, not always, but have you had any sense right now this morning, uh, Arthur, in terms of the who won, who, who lost things from people talking to you about your story or, or everything else, or is it kind of hard to tell uh, from this? We, we, Merald and I are obviously maybe a little too close to the podium to, to it, operate. I find it just as hard to read as you do. Of course, all the reaction that we're seeing on social media is largely driven by partisans that are automatically yeah. going to claim that their side won. Um, but, but when you really look at what the two parties had to do, it, it, it's, it's hard to see how Mo lost this. He really just had to avoid anything disastrous happening. He had to uh, basically uh, uh, um, appear competent, and he had to avoid any kind of knockout blow getting landed against him. And yep. and that just didn't happen. Miley didn't back him into a corner. I agree entirely with what we just heard from Meralda that Miley looked confident. Mo looked calm, everything was cordial, but there wasn't really enough last night to shake things up and fundamentally change the dynamic of the campaign. Yeah, he had one great line there I'll have to share with you. Uh, it, it, just before the debate started, he turned to uh, uh, Molly Thompson, I the host, and, and said, this debate's going to be about Murray, Murray Molly, Miley, Miley Mo. 
uh, in terms of a choice. I thought that was a good line. <laughs> they, they were remarkably calm uh, going into this, and this is something uh, just a little inside baseball that, you, that others didn't get to see, but they were chatting uh, uh, quite uh, uh, regularly and friendly with us prior to the debate. Uh, I guess they had never really kind of met you before, Merelda, and they, they were just no. They seem they seem loose though to me when they were yeah. talking. Yeah, I agree. They walked in. Everyone was pretty calm. They, you know, they did. They had that conversation. One of the first things I said when I got home last night and was talking to my husband was how relaxed it was. You know, you didn't feel that weird tension sometimes that you feel between leaders where they come in and there's you feel it. Last night they really came in ready to do the work that they needed to do, which was just a relief for the those of us sitting on the panel. Yeah, and and I you know uh, I I think that came as a bit of a surprise to us. Maybe we were expecting a little bit more tension and hostility. I thought the issues would provide that in terms of uh uh, the response, but instead, what I was sensing was a bit more thoughtfulness in terms of how they wanted to frame uh, each ish- issue. And we're, we're going to get specifically into uh, your issue, uh, the questions you raised, because they're so bloody important, Meralda. But what issues do you think the voters are going to take away from this debate last night, Arthur? That uh, uh, that that might have resonated with them more than than uh, than anybody was expecting. I, I think that the taxing, the tax and spend issues and the economic issues are going to remain important. And I think that those were the exchanges uh, that, 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 that became especially combative, uh, where, where we, we, we saw Mo directly speaking into the camera and, uh, and, and, and warning voters that Miley is going to raise your taxes. Miley doing the exact same thing, trying to convince you that Mo is going to cut your services and sell your crowns. These seem to be really the issues where the two leaders are trying to stoke fear uh, and supercharge emotions. And we all know that that's what gets the most traction in politics. Uh, That being said, I think one of the more um, emotionally charged moments in the debate was in response to some of Meralda's questions. Uh, Yes, Particularly uh, when 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 uh, Miley attacked very hard about the premier's refusal to meet with Tristan De Roche on the lawns of the legislative building, um, and 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 I think that Mo avoided stepping into any particularly dangerous territory. There, he basically stuck to the lines that he's given us throughout uh, that issue. Um, so I, I don't think he got himself into trouble, but, uh, he did, he did look defensive and a little bit. it'll be interesting to see whether that gets any traction in the days. There was a couple of moments there and, and that was one, I'm going to get into that with Merelda in 30 seconds, but first I'd like to ask Merelda about, uh, Alison Bamford's question, uh, related to, uh, uh, uh safe consumption sites, uh, the, the the problem with overdoses because I think they were actually sincerely taken aback by that question. Uh, just yeah, watching their, I their agree. Video. yeah, it's uh, uh, I get why um, uh, Mo would be because this has not been a strength for this government. And uh, but can you explain to people out there that, that might wonder why in a debate with everything else going on why that question would be so important to ask? Well, I think if they were listening to what Allison said, it's on track to kill more people. And I can't remember the exact all of the exact yeah. things, but car accidents. It's everything. And when we think it's everything. So when we think about what's happening out there, if you think about justice and safety, if you think about health and mental health, if you think about the cost that we have to pay in order to deal with these things, people shouldn't be surprised by that question at all. It's at the heart of some of the most costly um, pieces of our social programs because so many programs tie into that. And I think I think they were both a little taken aback, which I was surprised by. I would have been, I guess if I were in their camps, I think I would have been preparing them for that because you just had to look at some of the problems that we're facing. And then we know from research, you know, into COVID over the last, you know, several months that, 
things like domestic abuse and all of those things are exacerbated by this. So we know all of these problems are getting bigger, not smaller, and trying to deal with it with less money, which is exactly what both of them are essentially talking about. We have less money to deal with an ever-increasing problem. I've been dying to ask you this since the debate because it's the whole crux of why you were there. But I want to know if you were happy or you were satisfied coming from the venue you come from in life, and you can explain that uh, to the, uh, the viewers out there if you so wish. Uh, but coming from your perspective as a Métis woman, mm-hmm. did you have a sense of satisfaction with any of the answers that you got last night? Do you think it at least caused them people to think or caused them to think about how they were handling situa- uh, the situation? Because particularly your question related to where are you getting your advice? Where, how do you process information to... Uh, to uh, collect it and and assemble it in some kind of uh, successful policy. I think they were really also taken aback by that question because they stopped and gee, I guess no one's ever asked us that before. Were you satisfied with uh, uh, what you heard back from them last night, Meralda? It was one of those times where I felt they had to work through an answer while they were standing there. And I really... If I if the answers themselves didn't provide me everything, I probably didn't expect that. That's not enough time for us to have that conversation. But I appreciated that both of them tried to work through it. Um, I think it gives them pause to go back into their own parties now. At least it would have me if I hadn't thought about that before to really ask yourself, what is the voice that that Indigenous person has in our party? Do I listen to them? Do I bring them in when we start talking about these policies? What does that sound like? Um, I mean, as a Métis person, I've worked in organizations where people say they want your opinion, but often they don't because it's a really hard conversation to have. Like all of the things that you think you're doing to help might actually hurt. And it's a really hard thing to say, I have to really take myself out of this position where I think I'm trying to do something good and admit that that's not maybe the case. Can you explain that what you mean by that more from the perspective of politicians? Because I think they sincerely do want to help. No one wants to see a high suicide rate. No one wants to see unemployment. Why do you think it doesn't ever translate? And we're going to get into that in the next segment because election time is a brilliant time to talk about this issue. But why can politicians never translate sincere concerns uh, that I think that they do have into functioning policies? I'm always amazed by that. Well, obviously, now that I'm a PhD candidate at Johnson Shoyama School of Public Policy, I think about public policy (laughs) a lot more than I ever have in my entire life. Um, I actually have had so many revelations over this last, like, two years as I've been working through all of the programming and then working through sort of my own questions. But there's this moment when you start to form a policy as a as a group of people where if you don't have the voices of the people who are actually impacted by your policy sitting right there at the table, you're going to miss things. So if if we could imagine what it was like when, you know, the 60s scoop kind of, you know, like legislation was in place. I think people at the time maybe genuinely thought they were helping, but probably what they couldn't understand was that the underlying portion of that was that they viewed Indian people or Indigenous people as a problem, a problem that they could fix. And the the heart of every issue with policy when it comes to Indigenous people is that you view them as a problem you have to fix. Those images play out um, And I don't blame the media. I mean, the problems are real. So how do you not show those problems? That would be a huge disservice. But those images play out for people. So elected leaders who maybe don't have as much connection to Indigenous communities, then trying to create policy is kind of like me trying to tell you as a man well, this would work best for you in your healthcare plan. Well, I actually don't know that. I don't have any sort of experience that would back that up. And I see that sort of now, and it was something that I didn't necessarily see as a journalist, but but really that point at which without that inclusion, without knowing our story, you just assume that policy. It's funny because you just assume that always happens. They're surrounded by smart people. They're surrounded by bureaucrats in the case of government where 
they people who spent like yourself who spent their whole lives thinking about these things, developing policy, doing things where uh, they're trying to move forward. I always find it the, the problem being the political translation, and that's where it comes home in the debate last night. They can't articulate a soundbite solution to anything that we're that we're hearing right now, and I think that's personally the struggle they, they really had with your question. They actually stop, had to stop and think about it, and they yeah. had no soundbite for it. And, and uh, it was an interesting moment for, for me, anyway, just to, as somebody who's watched these way too much to sort of see that happening live. And they probably weren't expecting Molly to come back to me, right? To say, no. did you answer, did they answer your question? And my question is really about relationships because the heart of everything that's happening right now, whether it's with Indigenous people or seniors or others is really about relationships. It's about how we relate to one another. What do we give each other enough credit? So that cordial thing that we saw between the two of them, do you have that with other communities? Like, do you meet with them? Do you talk to them? Like, not on the campaign trail. That's a different kind of meet and greet. But are you actively involved in communities outside of your own sphere? And if you're not, how do you govern them? Like, right? It was your question about responsible government that really led into me. It's like, how can you be responsible? It, it was sort of a, a fascinating process to watch. Our next segment is going to be specifically on these issues. I believe it's Phil's segment, Arthur? It is Phil's, yes. Yeah, that's why he's not here, obviously, because he's working on it. But uh, I think um, uh, it, it, it's something that's absolutely crucial to uh, to bring up in the campaign. I'm so glad we had this opportunity. Uh, I guess we have to wrap it up. I thank you so much both. Next week, I'm inviting people that are stupider than me because I don't like this business of always having people smarter than me to talk to because I look dumb. But you know, it comes with a that's why they give you a column just so that you, your willingness to look dumb. I thank you both, Meralda Fiddler, Vanya Scholar, Arthur Crummy White, who's off to another press conference right now. So good luck with the rest of the campaign trail and campaigniacs. We'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Maria. Welcome back to Campaigniacs. I'm Phil Tank. I'm here with Saskatoon journalist Betty Ann Adam and Regina artist Jolie Big Eagle Kakwetue. In this episode, we're going to take a look at Indigenous issues in the provincial election. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Thank you. Phil. And I'm going to give you each uh, a little bit of time to uh, explain who you are and your background. Uh, why don't we start with you, Jolie? Okay. Hi there. Uh, my name is Jolie Bigil Sequedaway. I am Nakota Cree Soto from Wiper First Nations. I'm an artist. I am um, I'm co-founder of Buffalo People Arts Institute. Our mission is to bring back the buffalo mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. But I'm also a registered professional engineer with APEGS, and I also have a mathematics degree from First Nations University. Very, very impressive. And you, Betty Ann? Um, I was a reporter with the Star Phoenix for 29 years until 2018. And um, I am I'm a member of Fond du Lac Dene First Nation in northern Saskatchewan. And uh, I, since I left the paper, I've been continuing to work in journalism, um, working uh, with uh, doing freelance writing and editing and things like that. And um, yeah, that's about it. Okay. And um, before we get into what the parties are saying about Indigenous issues in this election, it, I, I found it interesting that when you look in, you know, the Saskatchewan Party policy uh, or platform, you actually see like a whole section devoted to uh, First Nations and, you know, in the NDP platform, it's kind of sprinkled throughout. I'm just wondering whether you think that's a victory in and of itself, that the parties are now actually putting into their platforms solid things about Indigenous people. Well, I think I think the the fact that they acknowledge that uh, there that there are Indigenous people is is worth noting and yet um, I think it should go without saying that indigenous people are very important uh, a, a very important and part of Saskatchewan residents 
Um, we are the first peoples here. Uh, many of us are treaty people. I mean, everyone in Saskatchewan is treaty people, of course, but uh, many of us uh, Indigenous people are signatories to treaty. And everything that is happening in Saskatchewan when governments are um, deciding where to emphasize um, um, spending in budgets, um, they need to consider um, that Indigenous people in Saskatchewan are at disadvantage because of uh, historic policies which continue to affect the lives of individuals. Now, these are historic policies like we all know about, like the Indian residential schools and the past system and, and various uh, things that kept Indigenous people out of the economy, but also um, are the current day policies which continue to negatively infect uh, affect Indigenous people. And so these things need to be addressed. And if Parties are going to talk about reconciliation. If they are going to raise that word themselves, then they have to acknowledge that that word comes to us from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which came out with 94 calls to action. And so we don't want to just hear the word reconciliation sprinkled around because it sounds good. We want to see we want to see policies that address the 94 calls to action. We want to see policy that affects people's lives today. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just interject here for a second before Jolie answers. Uh, it's interesting that the, that uh, the 94 calls to action came up before the last provincial election in uh, April of 2016. But over over to you, Jolie. Well, you know, I think that it, all the other parties have always had some kind of platform that identified some of identify some of our indigenous, I guess, issues within our province. And I know at the last election that there was virtually nothing with regards to Indigenous people, because that's something that I definitely look for. And and so, you know, it's just, I think maybe maybe it's it's on the forefront, and I don't feel like it's something that the SAS party necessarily is is um, is going to follow through. Like, I, I just know that in the past, there's been too many instances of, of, of just neglecting um, issues, such as especially having Tristan de Roche here in Regina at the Capitol sitting in a teepee across the lawn from the legislative building and not once in 44 days did Scott Moe cross that lawn to come and talk to him. So now anything that they put forth, any any platform that they put forth is is moot. It, it doesn't have any, there's there's no, um, I, I just, I wouldn't believe it. Um, and, and so, you know, having having them put it on their, their website or their platform or any information that I just got a pamphlet mailed to me today about Scott Moe and and so it's just um, you can tell that social media is a big um, uh, you know is a is something that all parties need to identify and and having you know young people being involved more in social media these days they know that the the effects of what Tristan DeRoche just himself did to this province and raising not only the awareness of what the SAS party um, is, is um, capable in terms of not even identifying suicide um, in this province, but also putting the spotlight on Saskatchewan by all the other provinces and the world. So I, I believe that if there is any platform regarding Indigenous people, it is just because of the pressure that they felt from all the other people in the world. I don't think it's it's true. I don't think it's really reflective of anything that they will put forth in the future. And have you had a chance to look at what the parties are saying uh, so far during the election campaign? And what do you think of what you're hearing so far? It, it To me, um, I, it seems like they're taking a chapter out of the politics in the South, um, you know, slinging, slinging, doing their best to dig up as much negative information as they can about each candidate and sharing that on social media and in the news and um, and also to um, you know I guess using some of the some of their their campaign funds to project themselves as as um, you know the next door neighbor kind of guy or I noticed that in some of the billboards in the city which are really expensive to be able to to pay for um, you know, Scott Moe is alongside each of the campaign, um, each of the, the members that are running. 
And it, to me, that seems like really, uh, you know, a Trump kind of politics that, that they associate themselves with, with Scott Moe. And that means that they're, they're supporting each other. And to me, it just reminds me of the old boys club. And so it seems to me that it's the same old, same old that the, the people that they're catering to are, are the people that, you know, that are, um, of the elite class and the ones that can vote. And I know that there are so many issues with getting, you know, the ones that need to vote out there. And so I don't see, um, you know, that kind of politicking or campaigning happening, especially in my community. I live in North Central and not once as far back. And I've lived here for, um, not almost 10 years. Not once has a SAS party campaign person come knock on my door. So, Betty Ann, hmm. what do you think? Over? Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What do, What do you think about what you're hearing so far? Um. Well, to tell the truth, when I okay, well, uh, first off, I have um, just following up on what Jolie said. Um, I've had. NDP, um, um, the NDP candidate in my riding come to the door more than once, and I've had a lot of, like, uh, calls from them and such. And so uh, in my riding, the uh, candidate is Ryan Miley. Um, so that I thought that was it, just interesting that I also haven't had a visit from um, a Saskatchewan party member, and I am home, like, 99% of the time, so I don't think I've missed anybody. <laughs> like many people. And yeah, and I think, I think, um, I guess I, when it comes to what I'm hearing from the Saskatchewan party, um, I can't help but take, um, an I'll believe it when I see it attitude. Because, um, in my own experience as, um, a member of the uh, 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Saskatchewan, which I'm also, I'm the co-chair of that, um, we, um, lat, we did sharing circles to talk to 60 scoop survivors to find out what they wanted in an apology. And the premier, um, we had said, had given us a very, very tight timeline and said that if we would get it done before, you know, this is a couple years ago now, if we would get it done before the beginning of December, they could, they would do the apology in the legislature. And, um, we got it to them as quickly as we could and they and I think we missed the deadline to get it in for the legislature by a day or two and so um, we said well that's okay like we're willing to wait until the spring sitting of the legislature that's no problem there's no big hurry for the apology and Scott Moe had promised his constituents that he was going to apologize that year so he didn't make his deadline either, but he had the apology right after the new year. Like it was on the 9th of January and the legislature wasn't sitting. And so instead of waiting until the legislature opened in March, he had the apology in January in the rotunda of the legislative building, which means that it isn't on the official government record. They rushed it so that he could do it immediately. And so now in, uh, in the Hansard record of the government of Saskatchewan and of the Saskatchewan Party government in particular, there is no apology on the public record, in the historic mm. record. It's, it was done in the public space of the Rotunda, and um, which was very disappointing to us. Uh, we requested that they wait and do it on the record, and they didn't. And then we heard um, a, very, a very moving apology from the Premier, um, you know, there were people in tears, but words are only words unless there's action attached to them. And it was interesting that when the, when the legislature did sit, the leader of the opposition did apologize in the, in the legislature, in the house. That's on the record. But these things mean something. When, when we have a premier, when we have a government that says nice things but doesn't follow up with action well he turns into the boy who cries wolf 
And why should we believe anything he says? Because he he has said nice things to us many times. Uh, and yet when it comes to spending, I mean, we know that as soon as Tristan de Rocher finished his fast, um, 11 days later, the province uh, joined with the feds and the FSIN to make a letter of commitment. And they said they're going to address suicide, youth suicide. And yet, when we look at the platforms, we see in the in the Star Phoenix today, we see that the Saskatchewan party is it hasn't named indigenous suicide indigenous suicide as an issue in the indigenous communities specifically, but says they'll give 1.2 million dollars toward preventing suicide, whereas the other party it says they'll give five million to suicide. So I mean, right there, there's just like kind of this this difference in the emphasis that the government places on on the the things that are adversely affecting indigenous people, and when when you have Children killing themselves, choosing that they do not want to live. How bad is life? How bad must their lives be? And, and, and the questions are, like when we look at suicide, that is the worst, worst possible outcome of mental health issues. And we know there's large, widespread mental health issues that are results of trauma, intergenerational trauma, ongoing traumas. We know these things are going on, and we're fa- we do not see the serious commitment in in spending toward providing mental health um, me- mental health services, especially to those isolated communities. Um, just just looking at the uh, Saskatchewan Party uh, platform, they point out that they uh, provided like more than two hundred million dollars in targeted investments for. Uh, you know, First Nations organizations and things like that, that they, you know, part of their pandemic relief was $45 million towards, um, you know, helping out the uh, organizations that would normally be helped out through casinos, uh, which, of course, had to close. Like, how do you respond to uh, to that? Um, well, you know, I, sorry, I'll, I think that I'd like to actually see how that is broken down because, you know, my mother works in the in the front lane front lines of um, drug and alcohol awareness, and and so you know one of the biggest issues that she talks about is the need for you know a place for for her clients to go to that are dealing with mental health issues, um, never mind gambling issues, but like especially meth issues, and um, and and of course where do our youth go for suicide? Um, issues, and you can look at what happened just recently in Regina. We had a young person go to the lake in the middle, right across from the legislative building, and and commit an act of of suicide because he was turned away at our hospital. I, you know, where are these funds being placed? Because they're definitely not being placed where our community needs them. And I know that um, you know our First Nation got some COVID relief. And, and there very, there were very strict guidelines what those COVID relief funds could be used for, which was cleaning, cleaning tools, cleaning supplies and masks. And I know as, as a nonprofit that we also looked at some of these relief funds, but they were in, we, we applied for some of the government relief funds and got denied because we want to provide art therapy. And, and, and so, you know, we know that those funds were geared towards cleaning supplies and masks. And, and so, you know, so the, the, unfortunately, the ones that can, got the benefit of it are the ones who make cleaning supplies and, and make, um, masks. Though, so, you know, so it's not, it didn't address the core issues that are affecting our community, especially now we're seeing a spike in mental health issues within our communities because people are forced to stay home and are unable to interact in our communities how we usually do in ceremonies or powwows or round dances or get-togethers, right? And so, yeah, I 40 million doesn't go a long way. And and I know that. And I would, but you know, if, if it's dispersed even amongst 74 First Nations, which I know that our First Nation didn't get a lot of money because we they have we have over two thousand people and and we weren't given money individually we were given like I said cleaning supplies so how does that help 
in the in the bigger picture with regards to mental health issues and suicide prevention. And I, I appreciate that the government um, spread out, um, you know, funding for COVID to help in the best way they could, but we don't expect anything less. We, we, we're not, I mean, they gave, they provided uh, money to other municipalities uh, as well. And so uh, mainstream Saskatchewan people benefited as well from any kinds of assistance from the government. And the fact that they also assisted uh, First Nations communities should not be something they get a pat on the back for. It's like that's business as usual. We expect that. And and nobody should be particularly impressed because we're getting equal treatment. So um, I'm going to talk about the what's in, in the NDP uh, platform as well. They pledged ten million dollars for uh, to implement the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Five million for a suicide strategy. They want to reform the child ref- welfare system, and they want to you know try to close the gap you know, in health, education, and justice. Now, I'm wondering if there's a sense of frustration when Indigenous people hear that because, you know, it's not a matter of, I think everyone kind of probably agrees we want to close the gap and we want more, greater equality, but, you know, like, how do you actually achieve that? I, you know, I think that in the past year, when it, well, since, you know, eventually, like, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, is we're being affected by the U.S. politics and Trump being in office has raised, you know, the level of white nationalism to the forefront of, of our communities that, you know, the KKK and and organizations that support, um, you know, um, organizations like the KKK, you know, it, it isn't contained in the state. And especially here in Saskatchewan, you know, when we look at, at what's happening and, and we look at the high profile case of Colton Bushi and, and how that has become, it's, it's, we, you can no longer cover up these incidences where, where our governments are, I guess, complicit in, in racist, um, atrocities that, you know, when I, when I look at when I look at it, that when you talk about the NDP platform and, and about their, their, I guess they, they want to help the community and, and they're going to do their best to help the community with providing some of these resources. I, I know that they, I have more belief in, in those, that platform because, um, I, we run a nonprofit where we participate in a lot of community activities, not just in Regina, but in Southern Saskatchewan. And when we attend those events and those activities, whether they're social events or whether they're political events or whether they're Tristan DeRoche's suicide awareness camp, the NDP were there. They were there in person. And not only were they there in person, but they actually contributed, like, here, here's $50 to help out an elder to, to buy this elder food while they're attending this camp. And it, and it wasn't something that they asked for to be recognized on social media or they didn't bring a photo, a photo video reporter from any of the news agencies. It's just something that they knew helped the community. So I have more faith in, in the NDP members than I, than I do in our SAS party members. And I know I have seen some of the SAS party members um, circling around, but I've never really actually interacted with them because they haven't interacted with me. Whereas the NDP They've always been one to, to come up and say, this is, how can I help? What can I do? You know, and that, that holds a lot more weight than just somebody coming for a photo opportunity. Yeah, with the, um, one of the, I have to say that, um, I appreciate that the NDP has identified issues that are affecting Indigenous people. And um, so if so, they say that they want to provide money to um, address gangs and gang membership and leaving gangs. And I mean, if you look at the root causes of gangs, if you look at the um, 
the sense of alienation that young indigenous men especially feel. Um, you know, as soon as a young man, as soon as an indigenous male hits puberty, society starts to look at him as a threat and they start to fear him. So that if he's 22 years old and drunk and comes in the, on your, on your, uh, farm, then, oh my gosh, you know, it is this, you know, it's like this is as if your life is at risk, you know, and that's, that's really unfortunate. But the fact is that that, those kind of attitudes have pushed indigenous men, boys and men, and teenagers and, and men, young men, feel sidelined in society and gangs are one of the places where they have a sense of belonging in and as shameful as that is that this is the best our society can do is to get that indigenous young men especially those who come from situations of poverty feel that this is the the only place where they're ever going to get any respect this and so to have like in Saskatoon, straight up has had great success working intensely one on one with young men, usually coming out of out of prison where they've had time to dry out and had time to reflect on what they want their lives to be. And then when they come out, there's some place for them to go, some place that gives them hope, helps them to stay on track and helps them to find employment and helps them to be better fathers and better partners. And and so the, this is real world stuff and for every dollar that goes into helping some young man find his way clear of the gangs and to start his life and get a job and start paying taxes and being a good dad and being a good partner and a good citizen those dollars come back to all of society and so that's one example of of the things I see in in policies that are going to address people where they live. It, you know, I was I, I was a little dismayed when I saw that the NDP said they were going to study education. And then I said, wait a minute. No, because we saw a slippage for many years. We've been seeing real improvements in the graduation rates of indigenous students in in high from high school. And in the last couple of years, we've seen a slip. And we don't know why. I know for me, it's like, what's going on? Well, and then I go and here's a, here I see that one of the parties is looking like we have to study what's going on with education for indigenous people. And so, and I think, okay, like, let's get to the root of this. And we don't, we all, I mean, as indigenous people, we all have been studied and studied and studied, but when it comes to education, this is so key to changing lives and changing futures um, that it's 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 imperative. And when I see policies that I that will affect Indigenous people in their real lives and and help to um, overcome some of the barriers that stop Indigenous people from. Uh, joining into the economy and joining into uh, society and 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 having the best lives they can have. I want I want to see policies that help people have the best lives they can have. And and I what what I don't want to see policies that continue to feed on fear. Like Jolie mentioned, this whole fear thing, this division between us and them, these ideas that we see pre- very prevalent in the United States. I don't like to see that in Saskatchewan. But personally, I couldn't help thinking that when Colton Bushy was shot, that immediately there was a, a clear division within Saskatchewan where white farmers especially were were all saying, oh, I would never, ever go onto somebody else's farm or no one should ever go onto anybody else's farm. Well, how do you ring a doorbell if you're not on their property? You know, and, and um, so, but, but, Going along with that, after the Colton Bushy killing, the Saskatchewan party in, uh, changed their trespass laws and made it harder for, for indigenous people to exercise their treaty rights to hunt and gather in according to their traditions. That is a treaty right. We were we were promised the ability to do that. But if you have absentee landlords living out of province or something, and you're trying to hunt, well, who do you even ask? How do you even know who to ask? It's not like there's a, there's a, a farm on every quarter, you know? And so uh, that, 
so we have the provincial government implement, you know, implementing laws, trespass laws, which infringe the treaties and which, um, which reinforce this sense of, you know, we, we have to circle our wagons to keep the Indians off our property. You know, that's how it feels. That's how that policy, that, that change in legislation, that was the, the feeling it had for me. And, uh, and I feel as though it, it, it really reinforced this idea of fear. And, and I'm just going to add when, because, you know, people talked about property rights and everything at the time of Colton Bushy, let us not forget that it was, uh, Ian, what was his last name? Some that this, I, I didn't think I'd ever forget his name. Um, it was Ian Stables. Ian Stables is the rancher who lived uh, south of Saskatoon, who was going out stealing millions of dollars worth of equipment from his farmer, from his, from his neighbors, and also from dealerships. Millions. They found two, over $2 million worth of equipment, all kinds of stuff stolen on this, on this white farmer's, uh, this white rancher's farm. Way more than he could ever use. And, and, and yet it's indigenous people who are always looked at with suspicion. So I think that um, we need we need policies that are going to help to tear down stereotypes and and create some understanding and unity between people. Yeah. All right. Thanks. I'd like to thank both both my guests this week. Uh, that's all the time we have. Uh, thanks for listening to Campaigniacs. And uh, tune in next week for more analysis on the provincial election.